Chapter Four of A Son at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Lou in New York City. A Son at the Front by Edith Wharton. Chapter Four. The evening was too beautiful and too full of the sense of fate for sleep to be possible and long after george had finally said all the same i think i'll turn in his father sat on listening to the gradual subsidence of the traffic and watching the night widen above paris as he sat there discouragement overcame him his last plan his plan for getting george finally and completely over to his side was going to fail as all his other plans had failed. If there were war, there would be no more portraits to paint, and his vision of wealth would vanish as visions of love and happiness and comradeship had one by one faded away. Nothing had ever succeeded with him, but the thing he had, in some moods, set least store by, the dogged achievement of his brush. And just as that was about to assure his happiness, here was this horrible world catastrophe threatening to fall across his path. His misfortune had been that he could neither get on easily with people nor live without them, could never wholly isolate himself in his art, nor yet resign himself to any permanent human communion that left it out or, worse still, dragged it in irrelevantly. He had tried both kinds, and on the whole preferred the first. His marriage, his stupid, ill-fated marriage, had, after all, not been the most disenchanting of his adventures, because Julia Ambrose, when she married him, had made no pretense of espousing his art. He had seen her first in the tumble-down Venetian palace where she lived with her bachelor uncle, old Horace Ambrose, who dabbled in bric-a-brac and cultivated a guileless bohemianism. Campton, looking back, could still understand why, to a youth fresh from Utica, at odds with his father, unwilling to go into the family business, and strangling with violent, unexpressed ideas on art and the universe, why marriage with Julia Ambrose had seemed so perfect a solution. She had been brought up abroad by her parents, a drifting and impecunious American couple, and after their deaths, within a few months of each other, her education had been completed at her uncle's expense in a fashionable Parisian convent. Thence she had been transplanted at nineteen to his Venetian household, and all the ideas that most terrified and scandalized Campton's family were part of the only air she had breathed. She had never intentionally feigned an exaggerated interest in his ambitions, but her bringing up made her regard them as natural. She knew what he was aiming at, though she had never understood his reasons for trying. The jargon of art was merely one of her many languages, but she talked it so fluently that he had taken it for her mother tongue. The only other girls he had known well were his sisters, earnest, eyeglassed young women, whose one answer to all his problems was that he ought to come home. The idea of Europe had always been terrifying to them, and indeed to his whole family, since the extraordinary misadventure whereby, 
as the result of a protracted diligence journey over bad roads of a violent thunderstorm and a delayed steamer campton had been born in paris instead of utica mrs campton the elder had taken the warning to heart and never again left her native soil but the sisters safely and properly brought into the world in their own city and state had always felt that campton's persistent yearnings for europe and his inexplicable detachment from utica and the mango were mysteriously due to the accident of their mother's premature confinement compared with the admonitions of these domestic censors miss ambrose's innocent conversation was as seductive as the tangles of neaira's hair and it used to be a joke between them one of the few he had ever been able to make her see that he the raw upstater was parisian born while she the glass and pattern of worldly knowledge had seen the light in the pure atmosphere of madison avenue through her in due course he came to know another girl a queer abrupt young american already an old maid at twenty-two and in open revolt against her family for reasons not unlike his own adele anthony had come abroad to keep house for a worthless artistic brother who was preparing to be a sculptor by prolonged sessions in anglo-american bars and the lobbies of music halls when he finally went under and was shipped home miss anthony stayed on in paris ashamed as she told campton to go back and face the righteous triumph of a family connection who had unanimously disbelieved in the possibility of making bill anthony into a sculptor and in the wisdom of his sisters staking her small means on the venture somehow behind it all i was right and they were wrong but to do anything with poor bill i ought to have been able to begin two or three generations back she confessed miss anthony had many friends in paris of whom julia ambrose was the most admired and she had assisted sympathizingly if not enthusiastically at campton's wooing of julia and their hasty marriage her only note of warning had been the reminder that julia had always been poor and had always lived as if she were rich and that was silenced by campton's rejoinder that the magic mangle to which the campton prosperity was due was some day going to make him rich though he had always lived as if he were poor well you'd better not any longer adele sharply advised and he laughed and promised to go out and buy a new hat in truth careless of comfort as he was he adored luxury in women and was resolved to let his wife ruin him if she did it handsomely enough doubtless she might have had fate given her time but soon after their marriage old mr campton died and it was found that a trusted manager had so invested the profits of the mangle that the heirs inherited only a series of lawsuits john campton henceforth was merely the unsuccessful son of a ruined manufacturer painting became a luxury he could no longer afford and his mother and sisters besought him to come back and take over what was left of the business it seemed so clearly his duty that with anguish of soul he prepared to go but julia on being consulted developed a sudden passion for art and poverty we'd have to live in utica for some years at any rate well yes no doubt they faced the fact desolately
They'd much better look out for another manager. What do you know about business? Since you've taken up painting, you'd better try to make a success of that, she advised him. And he was too much of the same mind not to agree. It was not long before George's birth, and they were fully resolved to go home for the event, and thus spare their hoped-for heir the inconvenience of coming into the world like his father in a foreign country. But now this was not to be thought of, and the eventual inconvenience to George was lost sight of by his progenitors in the contemplation of nearer problems. For a few years their life dragged along shabbily and depressingly. Now that Campton's painting was no longer an amateur's hobby, but a domestic obligation, Julia thought it her duty to interest herself in it, and her only idea of doing so was by means of what she called relations, using the word in its French and diplomatic sense. She was convinced that her husband's lack of success was due to Bossit's blighting epigram and to Campton's subsequent resolve to strike out for himself. "'It's a great mistake to try to be original till people have got used to you,' she said, with the shrewdness that sometimes startled him. "'If you'd only been civil to Bossit, he would have ended by taking you up, and then you could have painted as queerly as you liked.' Bossit, by this time, had succumbed to the honours which lie in wait for such talents, and in his starred and titled maturity his earlier dread of rivals had given way to a prudent benevolence.' Young artists were always welcome at the receptions he gave in his sumptuous hotel of the Avenue du Bois. Those who threatened to be rivals were even invited to dine, and Julia was justified in triumphing when such an invitation finally rewarded her efforts. Campton, with a laugh, threw the card into the stove. "'If you'd only understand that that's not the way,' he said. "'What is, then?' Why, letting all that lot see what unutterable rubbish one thinks them. I should have thought you'd tried that long enough, she said with pale lips. But he answered jovially that it never palled on him. She was bitterly offended, but she knew Campton by this time and was not a woman to waste herself in vain resentment. She simply suggested that since he would not profit by Bosit's advance, the only alternative was to try to get orders for portraits. And though at that stage he was not in the mood for portrait painting, he made an honest attempt to satisfy her. She began, of course, by sitting for him. She sat again and again, but lovely as she was, he was not inspired, and one day, in sheer self-defense, he blurted out that she was not paintable. She never forgot the epithet, and it loomed large in their subsequent recriminations. Adele Anthony, it was just like her, gave him his first order, and she did prove paintable. Campton made a success of her long, crooked, pink-nosed face, but she didn't perceive it. She had wanted something oval, with tulle and a rose in a tapered hand and after heroically facing the picture for six months, she hid it away in an attic, whence, a year or so before the date of the artist's present musings, it had been fished out as an early Campton, to be exhibited half a dozen times, and have articles written about it in the leading art reviews. Adele's picture acted as an awful warning to intending patrons, and after one or two attempts at depicting mistrustful friends— Campton refused to constrain his muse, and no more was said of portrait painting. 
but life in Paris was growing too expensive. He persuaded Julia to try Spain, and they wandered about there for a year. She was not fault-finding, she did not complain, but she hated traveling. She could not eat things cooked in oil, and his pictures seemed to her to be growing more and more ugly and unsaleable. Finally they came one day to Ronda, after a trying sojourn at Cordova. In the train, Julia had moaned a little at the mosquitoes of the previous night, and at the heat and dirt of the second-class compartment. Then, always conscious of the ill-breeding of fretfulness, she had bent her lovely head above her Tauchnitz book, and it was then that Campton, looking out of the window to avoid her fatally familiar profile, had suddenly discovered another. It was that of a peasant girl in front of a small, whitewashed house under a white pergola hung with bunches of big red peppers. The house, which was close to the railway, was propped against an orange-colored rock, and in the glare cast up from the red earth its walls looked as blue as snow in shadow. The girl was all blue-white, too, from her cotton skirt to the kerchief-knotted turban-wise above two folds of blue-black hair. Her round forehead and merry nose were relieved like a bronze medallion against the wall, and she stood with her hands on her hips, laughing at a little pig asleep under a cork-tree who lay on his side like a dog. The vision filled the carriage window and then vanished, but it remained so sharply impressed on Campton that even then he knew what was going to happen. He leaned back with a sense of relief and forgot everything else. The next morning he said to his wife, "'There's a little place up the line that I want to go back and paint. You don't mind staying here a day or two, do you?' She said she did not mind. It was what she always said but he was somehow aware that this was the particular grievance she had always been waiting for. He did not care for that or for anything but getting a seat in the diligence which started every morning for the village nearest the White House. On the way he remembered that he had left Julia only forty pesetas, but he did not care about that either. He stayed a month, and when he returned to Ronda, his wife had gone back to Paris, leaving a letter to say that the matter was in the hands of her lawyers. "'What did you do it for, I mean, in that particular way? For goodness knows I understand all the rest,' Adele Anthony had once asked him, while the divorce proceedings were going on, and he had shaken his head, conscious that he could not explain. It was a year or two later that he met the first person who did understand— a Russian lady, who had heard the story, was curious to know him, and asked one day, when their friendship had progressed, to see the sketches he had brought back from his fugue. Comme je vous comprends, she had murmured, her grey eyes deep in his. But perceiving that she did not allude to the sketches, but to his sentimental adventure, Campton pushed the drawings out of sight, vexed with himself for having shown them. He forgave the Russian lady her artistic obtuseness for the sake of her human comprehension. They had met at the loneliest moment of his life, when his art seemed to have failed him like everything else, and when the struggle to get possession of his son, which had been going on in the courts ever since the break with Julia, had finally been decided against him. His Russian friend consoled, amused, and agitated him. 
and after a few years drifted out of his life as irresponsibly as she had drifted into it, and he found himself at forty-five a lonely, thwarted man, as full as ever of faith in his own powers, but with little left in human nature or in opportunity. It was about this time that he heard that Julia was to marry again, and that his boy would have a stepfather. He knew that even his own family thought it the best thing that could happen. They were tired of clubbing together to pay Julia's alimony, and heaved a united sigh of relief when they learned that her second choice had fallen, not on the bankrupt foreign count they had always dreaded, but on the Paris partner of the famous bank of Bullard and Brandt. Mr. Brandt's request that his wife's alimony should be discontinued gave him a moral superiority which even Campton's recent successes could not shake. It was felt that the request expressed the contempt of an income easily counted in seven figures for a pittance painfully screwed up to four, and the Camptons admired Mr. Brandt much more for not needing their money than for refusing it. Their attitude left John Campton without support in his struggle to keep a hold on his boy. His family sincerely thought George safer with the Brants than with his own father, and the father could advance to the contrary no arguments they would have understood. All the forces of order seemed leagued against him, and it was perhaps this fact that suddenly drove him into conformity with them. At any rate, from the day of Julia's remarriage, no other woman shared her former husband's life. Campton settled down to the solitude of his dusty studio at Montmartre and painted doggedly all his thoughts on George. At this point in his reminiscences, the bells of St. Clotilde rang out the half-hour after midnight, and Campton rose and went into the darkened sitting-room. The door into George's room was open, and in the silence his father heard the boy's calm breathing. A light from the bathroom cast its ray on the dressing-table, which was scattered with the contents of George's pockets. Campton, dwelling with a new tenderness on everything that belonged to his son, noticed a smart antelope card-case. George had his mother's weakness for Bond Street novelties. A wrist-watch, his studs, a bundle of banknotes, and beside these a thumbed and dirty red book, the size of a large pocket diary. The father wondered what it was, then of a sudden he knew. He had once seen Madame Lebel's grandson pull just such a red book from his pocket as he was leaving for his twenty-eight days of military service. It was the livre militaire that every French citizen under forty-eight carries about with him. Campton had never paid much attention to French military regulations. George's service over, he had dismissed the matter from his mind, forgetting that his son was still a member of the French army, and as closely linked to the fortunes of France as the grandson of the concierge of Montmartre. Now it occurred to him that that little red book would answer the questions he had not dared to put, and stealing in, he possessed himself of it and carried it back to the sitting-room. There he sat down by the lamp and read. First, George's name, his domicile, his rank as a maréchal de logis of dragoons, the number of his regiment and its base, all that was already familiar. But what was this on the next page? 
In case of general mobilization announced to the populations of France by public proclamations or by notices posted in the streets, the bearer of this order is to rejoin his regiment at blank. He is to take with him provisions for one day. He is to present himself at the station of blank on the third day of mobilization at six o'clock and to take the train indicated by the station master. The days of mobilization are counted from zero o'clock to twenty-four o'clock. The first day is that on which the order of mobilization is published. Campton dropped the book and pressed his hands to his temples. The days of mobilization are counted from zero o'clock to twenty-four o'clock. The first day is that on which the order of mobilization is published. Then, if France mobilized that day, George would start the second day after, at six in the morning. George might be going to leave him within forty-eight hours from that very moment. Campton had always vaguely supposed that some day or other, if war came, a telegram would call George to his base. It had never occurred to him that every detail of the boy's military life had long since been regulated by the dread power which had him in its grasp. He read the next paragraph. The bearer will travel free of charge, and thought with a grin how it would annoy Anderson Brandt that the French government should presume to treat his stepson as if he could not pay his way. The plump bundle of banknotes on the dressing table seemed to look with ineffectual scorn at the red book that sojourned so democratically in the same pocket. And Campton, picturing George jammed into an overcrowded military train, on the plebeian wooden seat of a third-class compartment, grinned again, forgetful of his own anxiety in the vision of Brandt's exasperation. Ah, well, it wasn't war yet, whatever they said. He carried the red book back to the dressing-table. The light falling across the bed drew his eye to the young face on the pillow. George lay on his side, one arm above his head, the other laxly stretched along the bed. He had thrown off the blankets, and the sheet, clinging to his body, modeled his slim flank and legs as he lay in dreamless rest. For a long time Campton stood gazing, then he stole back to the sitting-room, picked up a sketch-book and pencil, and returned. He knew there was no danger of waking George, and he began to draw eagerly but deliberately, fascinated by the happy accident of the lighting and of the boy's position. "'Like a statue of a young knight I've seen somewhere,' he said to himself, vexed and surprised that he, whose plastic memories were always so precise, should not remember where. And then his pencil stopped. What he had really thought was, like the effigy of a young knight, though he had instinctively changed the word as it formed itself. He leaned in the doorway, the sketchbook in hand, and continued to gaze at his son. It was the clinging sheet, no doubt, that gave him that look, and the white glare of the electric burner. If war came, that was just the way a boy might lie on a battlefield, or afterward in a hospital bed. Not his boy, thank heaven, but very probably his boy's friends, hundreds and thousands of boys like his boy, the age of his boy, with a laugh like his boy's, the wicked waste of it. Well, that was what war meant what tomorrow might bring to millions of parents like himself. He stiffened his shoulders and opened the sketchbook again. What watery stuff was he made of, he wondered, 
just because the boy lay as if he were posing for a tombstone? What of Signorelli, who had sat at his dead son's side and drawn him, tenderly, minutely, while the coffin waited? Well, damn Signorelli, that was all. Campton threw down his book, turned out the sitting-room lights, and limped away to bed. End of chapter 4